Okay, last time we were together, remember we left off with uh, Jacob at this point sort of departing from his homeland. The direct result, remember, of all the chaotic events in his household there where, if you remember, there was this kind of conniving going on where his father Isaac and his brother Esau had this intention and plan whereby Isaac, recognizing he was getting older and in his latter years, not knowing when he would die and wanting, because it seems this sort of uh, favoritism that existed there between Isaac and Esau, wanting to pronounce the blessing uh, upon his life. Of course, we know that he was doing this in direct defiance of what God's intention was because God had called Jacob uh, to be the one to inherit the, the covenant that God had intended to go from Abraham to Isaac and then, of course, to Jacob. But remember, as a result of that, instead of just trusting the Lord and letting God be God and realizing that even if Isaac pronounced the most wonderful, prophetic-sounding, eloquent uh, blessing upon Esau that he possibly could, that those words would mean nothing if God's hand and God's anointing and God's blessing supernaturally was not behind that. And rather than uh, Rebecca and uh, her son Jacob just sort of, again, letting God be God and saying, you know what, uh, let's not worry about this, or maybe confronting and talking about it directly. Instead, remember, they came up with their own idea that, look, you you haven't seen scheming until you see what we're able to do. And, of course, we saw this whole scenario where uh, she encouraged her son to go in to his father, Isaac, Jacob, being a master conniver. That was right up his alley. He seemed to just be kind of a schemer and somebody who just always knew how. He's known for that in the Scriptures. He just always knew how to work every situation to his advantage. He just had one of those personalities, and he was good at it. You know, he was good at basically just tweaking things, and he knew how to push buttons and work people, and always to win and to get the upper hand in every situation. And this was just his personality. He was very independent, very self-driven, and it became his own curse uh, in his life. But she convinced him, remember, look, uh, let's pretend that you're your brother. Your father can't see well. He won't recognize it. Put on some, remember, animal skins, and I'll make some food and send you in there before Esau gets back from the hunt and pretend you're Esau and, and let your father bless you. And, of course, this is exactly what happened. Jacob complies. He goes in, and the father pronounces blessing upon him, which, remember, when Esau comes back, he's completely enraged. And he's angry at his brother because now he feels like twice his brother has gotten one over on him. He says, look, you, you stole away my birthright, and now you've taken away my blessing. And he was comforting himself by the fact that dad's not that many years left. And once dad dies, as soon as those seven days are mourning are up, uh, I'm not going to feel the slightest bit sorry when I put my hands around your little neck and put you to death, and the next seven days will all be mourning for you afterwards. And, of course, uh, Mom, recognizing she had created quite a fiasco now in her own household by, again, trying to take control and get involved and, and meddle with things that she probably shouldn't have meddled with herself, trying to, well, my husband knows what he's doing, so I better fix the thing myself and go behind his back and make it work. Uh, she now realized she made a bigger fiasco 
instead of just, again, letting God be God in the situation and keeping her hands off or maybe just praying and committing to the Lord. And now she realizes, oh, my goodness, you've got to get out of here because your brother Esau, uh, he's got an anger issue as it is. He's a very carnal man, a worldly man. He's legitimately going to kill you, and then I'm going to lose everybody. You know, your father's going to die. He's going to murder you, and then the men of the society the, the week after that are going to take you and put you to death for cold-blooded murder. So she tells Jacob, look, you've got to get out of here. We need to get you away from here. So she speaks to Isaac, the father, of course. They both recognize what's now happened within the family uh, and says, look, we need to send him away. Let's send him back to our homeland where she was from, Rebecca, to go and get a wife. So he doesn't take a pagan wife from this land of the idol-worshipping women in the land of Canaan. We need to send him away. So chapter 28, verse 1, we saw where uh, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Pat and Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban. And remember, Laban and Rebekah, this is Jacob's mom, were, were actually brother and sister. Uh, go to there and take one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So at this point now, Jacob, again, he's almost sort of forced from the household because of circumstances. He realizes his life is in jeopardy. His brother legitimately hates him this much and is angry enough to want to literally put the guy to death. Uh, he realizes what he has done is no doubt wrong. His own conscience is probably convicting him in the whole process. And he now is launched away to go back to the family's homeland to go and to find a wife from that territory. Well, we, we left off there at the end of verse 9. We, we pick back up in verse 10 again with Jacob now on this journey. And it says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And so he came to a certain place and stayed there, notice, all night. Because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, you know a guy is really bone-tired when you can lay down on the ground and take a rock for a pillow and just, you know, you know you're really tired when that, you know, uh, no nice comfy, uh, you know, super sleeper number, adjust your bed mattress, you're on the ground, and he takes a pillow just to kind of prop up his head so he doesn't get a, you know, a crick in his neck and he's not all certain. He just literally lays down, it says, exhausted, took a stone from that place, put it under his head, and he laid down, and he just went out. And he's probably tired for a couple of reasons. No doubt he's probably physically exhausted because he's been traveling throughout the land, a very, again, a very arid climate there. He's moving through hot territory covering miles upon foot so he's at this time possibly have traveled a few days not to mention uh he's just exhausted from the whole experience the whole emotional fiasco and you know how if things get chaotic in your personal life or your home life on top of being physically weary i mean you you can just get mentally and emotionally exhausted if you've ever gone through things before and you just kind of feel like you're drained and it's not necessarily much a physical exhaustion but you're just like i am just so exhausted mentally and emotionally and and just completely depleted and he's at this point too because he realizes some of the things that he's created through some of his deception and actions so he's exhausted he's afraid He's nervous, he's lonely, he's all by himself now out in the middle of this isolated place, and he realizes he's kind of in a jam. 
And all those things are bearing down on him. He finds himself in this place where it's the direct result of his own choices. And sometimes we make our own poor choices and find ourselves in a similar place where we find ourselves in the same way. We're exhausted because of the things that we've got ourselves into that have just kind of really wiped us out mentally, emotionally, and spiritually in every way. Uh, and we're, we're afraid now, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And we're lonely and we're isolated and we realize, oh my goodness, I've really got myself in a jam. And this is where he's at. He lays down now and conks out to go to sleep. And it's at this point in his life now God reveals himself to him in a powerful way. And Jacob now gets his first real personal experience with God. He gets a revelation from God. And again, this is so beautiful because keep in mind, this is when this guy's at his worst. I mean, you would think if there were a time when God would say, I don't want anything to do with you right now, Jacob. I mean, look, look what the mess you just made. I mean, you're living in the flesh, you're conniving, you're, you know, you're, you're lying and deceiving and you made a mess and, and you have just got yourself, you know what, just take a few days and live in that, son. You know, just think about that for a little bit. I don't want anything to do with you right now. And if you think there would be a time when God would want to retract himself from a human being because of their own choices and where they're at, but instead you find the exact opposite. You find God being gracious to Jacob, and when he's in a sense at his wit's end and he's got himself backed into a corner, these are the occasions when God really powerfully ministers to Jacob. And this is the way God just dealt with Jacob. We'll see over the next 20 years in Jacob's life, as we go through the chapters ahead, that God just had to work with this guy to wear him down and to grind him down. And, and it came through a process of a couple times of God just really powerfully revealing himself to Jacob in his life in such a way where it was unmistakable to Jacob of the desperate need he had for God in his own life. And this becomes the first of those experiences. So here he is sleeping under all these emotions, fear, loneliness. He's in a jam. He's exhausted. Verse 12 says, and as he's sleeping, then he dreamed and behold, it says a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. <clears throat> and behold, the Lord stood above it, that is, that is at the top of the ladder, or literally the Hebrew could indicate maybe better like a, a stairway, could be the idea. The Lord stood above at the top and said to him, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants." Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. <clears throat> and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's God. He reiterates now the covenant promise to the line of Abraham, which then was transferred to Isaac. And now Jacob realized has been conferred and transferred to him as the next generation in the patriarchs of that family, we see the reiteration of this promise now. And notice 15, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and bring you back to this land, God says, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He senses the reality of the presence of God. And he was, it says, afraid. 
and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So we have this experience now where in the midst of a dream, and again, Hebrews 1 says that in you know times past, God spoke to men in various ways and at various times. And one of the ways that we see in Scripture that on occasion God will speak or has spoken to men is through a dream. So he has this dream, and in the midst of this dream, God gives him sort of a, a vision or a revelation. Uh, chapter uh, 28, verse 12 here says that in this dream, first of all, it says he saw a ladder that was set up from the earth going up to heaven. It's the only time this Hebrew word's ever used. It could also, again, be indicating the idea of maybe not necessarily a ladder, but a stairway. Same idea either way. He sees this ladder or stairway reaching from earth up to heaven. It says the angels of God, spiritual beings, are ascending and descending upon it. So all of a sudden, what does God do? God opens up his eyes to allow him to see into the spiritual realm. Again, this was part of Jacob's problem because Jacob was always living life according to the physical realm. What he could touch and manipulate and make work. You know, he was a master manipulator, worked the circumstances. And his biggest downside was not being conscious enough of the spiritual realm and of the eternal realm and that God had something going on all the time behind the scenes and he was too in touch with the natural realm and not enough in touch with the spiritual realm. So God opens his eyes and allows him to see some of the realities of what was happening in the spiritual realm. And this ladder gateway is there and it says it's going from, from earth up to heaven and the angels of God. Again, created spiritual beings. Hebrews 1 says that the angels are, are ministering spirits sent to aid the heirs of salvation. And he sees you know, the angels of God going up and down and he sees the Lord at the very top, right there, sort of the access uh, into heaven. And what an interesting thing is his eyes are open to the reality of the spiritual dimension and he sees, oh my goodness, I had no idea so much spiritual activity was taking place in the world. Here I am just living everything by what I see with my eyes and what I hear with my ears and what I can touch and taste and, and through the physical senses. And so often that's us too, isn't it? We, we try and approach and handle and do everything according to the physical senses in the natural realm when the reality is, you know, the Bible tells us, look, the things that are, are, are seen are temporal, it says in Corinthians, and, and the things that are not seen are the things that are eternal. There is an unseen realm. There is spiritual activity going on all the time, coexisting simultaneously, having a direct effect upon what's happening in the natural. Paul tells the, the Corinthians, he says, look, you know, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Because he says the weapons of warfare aren't carnal but mighty in God. In other words, he's saying, look, yes, we experience life in the flesh. But he says we need to realize that we don't fight our battles by using carnal, fleshly means because we realize that there are spiritual activities and influences behind everything that's happening because there is a coexisting spiritual realm happening at the same time. And again, as, as you see this taking place, interesting that Jesus actually gives a word of commentary in relation to what's being seen here. Listen to this, this is from John chapter 1, verse 50 and 51. Jesus says this in Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. He says to Nathaniel, as he's revealing himself to Nathaniel, he says, Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. And listen to the words of Jesus. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. 
So years and years later, again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. What exactly is this? Jesus, later on in the Gospel of John chapter 1, talks to Nathaniel, and he gives commentary on exactly what this is, what this ladder or this uh, gateway or so forth is going from earth up to heaven where the angelic activity is all happening through the access of that ladder. Jesus says... You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, Jesus says, but upon the Son of Man. Again, Jesus stating the reality that he is the access between earth and heaven. Everything that, that has direct connection between the spiritual realm and the temporal realm of the earth, it all happens all through the access of the person of Jesus. Jesus is, again, if you think of what a ladder is, what is a ladder? A ladder is basically something that's used to connect one location to another location. It's, it's to connect the first floor to the second floor. Same thing with steps, to connect the first floor to the second floor. Jesus is the connection. He's the connection between everything that's divine and he's the connection between everything that's human and physical here on this earth. Remember, Jesus ultimately says in relation to salvation, which is extremely important in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except what? Through me indicating again, I am the gate, I am the access point. All spiritual activity, a person's conversion and access into heaven, it only comes through me. It doesn't come through church, it doesn't come through being a good person, it doesn't come through coming to Wednesday night Bible studies and, okay, I'm coming to Wednesday. No, Jesus says it comes through a person. It comes through a person. The same way the angels have a connection between heaven and earth, the only way for us to have a connection from earth to heaven and to be in the presence of God in heaven when we die is to come through the person of Jesus because he himself is the one that is the access, the connecting point between the things of earth and the things of heaven. So so important that we're coming to him directly and interesting that we get that commentary years later. So as he sees this, then notice verse 13, the Lord speaks and he says to Jacob, I am the Lord God. He says, of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and this land, again, promising the land, I will give to you and to your descendants. He also tells them again down in verse 14, in your seed, that is in your family line, all the earth shall be blessed, the messianic line through the line of Jacob, ultimately, who will become the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, the Messiah would come through the line of Jacob's family. Verse 15, he says to him as well, and this is very personal, Jacob, notice, I am with you. My presence is with you. Jacob, you think you're out here all alone by yourself? You think you're abandoned and you've made a mess and so therefore now you're out here struggling to get by on your own and you're all by yourself and that's it. You've, and he says, Jacob, I'm with you. My presence is with you. And he says, more than that, I will keep you wherever you go. You're afraid. You're wondering what's going to destroy you, how your brother is going to catch you and harm you. He says, look, I am with you and I will preserve you and I will protect you. And what great promises for you and I as well. How much more for us who are in relationship with Jesus to know that the presence of Jesus is with us, that wherever we go, and whether it's, again, because we're moving in a direction we're supposed to, or even on those occasions where we take detours and we go in places where we know we shouldn't, Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heaven, you're there. If I make bed, my bed in the depths of hell, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And to know the Lord is with us wherever we go. And sometimes 
We may go places we shouldn't go, and guess what? The Lord is loving enough that, that he goes after us. Have you ever noticed that? And, and he kind of goes, what, what are you doing here? What are we doing here? We're not, we're not supposed to be here. And we're not supposed to be doing this right now. We should go back where we're supposed to. And, and how wonderful that he, he lovingly, like a shepherd, pursues us, even when we wander like sheep. Much, we have much of Jacob in our personalities as well. And, and we can tend to be independent and we, we get off track. And he says, Jacob, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go. And Jacob, don't worry. I'm going to bring you back to this land and I will not leave you amazing. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. The promises of God I've given to you, he says, Jacob, I know it seems like you're taking a detour because you're going away from your homeland when this is where my plan for you is, but I'm telling you this, Jacob, I'm not going to leave you until I fulfill exactly what I promised you. It's not going to be on your timetable, but he says, I will fulfill my promise to you. And how wonderful, because that's exactly the same type of promise the Lord gives us. Philippians 1 says that we can be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you in me will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That the moment the Lord saved you, he became committed to the work in your life and he's way more committed than you are. If you haven't noticed that yet, I've noticed that continuously. The Lord is way more committed to what he started in my life than I am. A lot of times my commitment is nothing in comparison to how much I realize he's committed. But he's got a plan and he's got a purpose. And all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. So God's promise to provide for you. God's promise to, you know, to bring a spouse to you. God's promise to be you know, faithful to you in this way or, or to make sure that he accomplishes maybe this personal calling in your life. God says, I'm going to finish. I'm going to complete everything I promised in your life. He says, and I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. How wonderful. Because, man, I'll tell you something. As you track along in life, have you ever noticed that, that, that a lot of times you got people and they are, they're good old boy, I'm with you, man, I'm with you to the end and I will not leave you. And then all of a sudden, six months, six years later, they turn around and they hightail, wait a minute, I thought you were with me. I thought you were loyal. I thought we were comrades. And human beings can be very fickle. The wonderful thing is with the Lord, you have that assurance of companionship that he will never leave you. Maybe people have left you. Maybe you've been abandoned by... The Lord will never leave you. He will always continue to remain with you and he will fulfill what he speaks into your life. Verse 16 is Jacob has this experience. Look at his response. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He's just overwhelmed. He says he says he was afraid. The idea is literally he was terrified. He was overwhelmed. Why? He was overwhelmed with the presence of God. He realized he's just had an encounter with Jehovah God, the living God. And he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other, he says, than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Again, interesting. He's not in a church. He's, you know, he, 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 he's out in the middle of the wilderness. But he had an encounter and he had an experience with the Lord. And that was what really begins to become the turning point in Jacob's life that he had his own personal experience with the Lord. Now, I think in some ways, again, at this point, God's still working in Jacob's life. This is the first major revelation he receives of the Lord in a personal way. Potentially, he's thinking to himself as he came to this certain place, he laid down, he saw this vision, he hears from the Lord. He's probably maybe in his mind, in his limited view, thinking, can you believe it? Of all places on planet Earth, I laid down my head on a rock 
it's actually the supernatural portal <laughs> where all the angels are coming up and down and doing their... Can you believe of all places, this is... Oh, my goodness. I laid my head at the bottom of God's ladder, you know, where, where God's... And, and the reality was the Lord... I don't know, Jacob, Jacob. That's why I think maybe God says to him there in verse 15, Jacob, I'm with you wherever you go. I'm not localized to one place, Jacob. My, I want my presence to be with you. So whether you're here in Bethel or you're in Paddan Aram or whether you're back in Beersheba, I'm with you wherever you go. My presence is with you, not just in some localized place. And how wonderful that is because sometimes you know, we, we have this tendency where we, we experience the presence of God in a real special way and in maybe a particular location or a time or season in our life. And we're always craving for that old, oh, there, I just, oh, I so, I so sense the presence of the Lord there, and it was so wonderful, and oh, it'll never be like that again. To me, I say that problem's on your end, not on God's. And I hear Christians do this on occasion. Oh, I remember, you know, I remember the good old days. Oh, oh, and I sense the presence of the Lord, and it was, it'll just never be like that again, and, and, and going, so on and so forth. And oh, just, and, or there I went there. Oh, and people were just so in love with Jesus there, and it's just, oh, the, just the Lord's presence isn't around, and I just wish it could be like that where it's out there. And it's almost like we, we idolize some place, or if God's partial, he's at certain places more than other places. Look, can I pose a thought to you? If you see somewhere where it seems like there's a forest fire happening for Jesus, how does a forest fire happen? One spark. Who's to say you're not supposed to be the spark? Maybe you're supposed to be the spark. <laughs> I don't think the Lord's partial, and we should idolize some place where it's if all the presence of the Lord is always... Well, Jesus said, when two or three gather in my name, I am in the midst. In the midst. A lot of times the problem is on my end and the dullness of my heart that, like Jacob here, this is my word. Lord, you were in this place, and I didn't know it. Lord, help my unbelief. Forgive the dullness of my heart that I'm not sensitive enough to the things of the Spirit that I diminish the reality of your presence when you were with me. You were with us. And, and so often, that's on, on our end. And how wonderful, though, when the Lord lets us come to that realization. Because, you know, I'll tell you, those are the real pivotal moments in all of our spiritual lives. This is the beginning of a process where God's beginning to break that independent spirit and that self-will that drove Jacob and became a real stumbling block in his life. This is the moment where that begins to happen. And I'll tell you something, gang. Do you, do you know what we all need in our lives in a greater way more than anything else is just a deeper revelation of the Lord in our own lives. A greater personal encounter with the Lord ourselves because that's what changes people. Do you see people think, oh my goodness, Lord, you know, if you could only reach them. You know you should pray. Lord, I pray. Just reveal yourself to that person. Let them have such a powerful experience with you because, see, this was undeniable. What Jacob experienced was so powerful, it was undeniable. And it was these moments in his life, later on the Lord wrestles with him, of course, we know, and kind of ultimately breaks him at the end of his life. But it's the powerful personal experiences that the Lord wants to give us in our lives that really have an effect in our lives. Notice, as the result of this, Jacob is astonished. Verse 18 says, He then rose early in the morning 
and took the stone that he had put his head on and he set it up as a pillar. The idea is like a, a memorial. He wanted to remember this experience and he poured oil on top of it, a very cultural thing to do. And he's kind of setting up a memorial to uh, memorialize the place where he had this great encounter with the Lord as a memory. In verse 19, and he called the name of that place Bethel or Bethel, again, literally Bethel, house of God. Uh, is the term there. He calls it the house of God, Bethel. But the name of that place or that city before had been called Luz previously. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on that is provision, he'll sustain me as I travel on this journey through my life, he says, so that I then come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, surely I will give a tenth to you. Now, let me just say, some people look at verse 20 through 22, and you can find this, and, and they see verse 20 to 22 as almost like here's Jacob again, He's kind of trying to make a deal with God, and, and that's possible. Some people look at this, and they kind of almost in a, you know, a, a semi-critical way towards Jacob, kind of look at it as if as Jacob has this experience with the Lord, and then he makes a vow, and he's almost like, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'd, okay, if, you're gonna, if you'll take care of me, and you promise to provide for me, and you're going to bring me back to this place, then I'll tell you what, God, I'll let you be my God, and, and I'll give you a tenth. How's that? Is that a good deal? You know, and, and some people see it the way... I, Personally, my own conviction, again, you study the scripture for yourself, I think Jacob is sincerely endeavoring to make a genuine commitment to the Lord. I know he still has issues and struggles with kind of being a, a schemer and a conniver, and God's still working the kinks out of his system as he's going along, but I, I personally tend to think Jacob's sincere here. I think what you have here is Jacob making a sincere, in a sense, commitment at this level, at this point, to his understanding to the Lord, if whereas since God you're going to be with me and keep me, he says, he says, then the Lord shall be my God. I think the emphasis is on the word my there. Even as he was my grandfather Abraham's God and he was my my father Isaac's God, he shall be my God, my God. He's going to be my God now. Because maybe out of this point he had learned a lot of things about God himself. He knew things about God. But that personal transaction where he really took ownership of God for himself and he said he shall be my God, maybe potentially that's never happened until this point really in Jacob's life. And this is that moment where he says he's going to be my God. He's going to, he's going to be the one who I serve now and who I choose to follow because he has a desire to do so because he's had this experience with the Lord. And you know what? I think ultimately that's where the Lord wants to bring us to, where we do that. You know, Psalm 23, the lady's been studying you know, on, the, on the Monday nights. The Lord is my shepherd. You know what's the key word in that psalm? My. Let's say the Lord is a shepherd and I shall not one. He make, it's, it's, not, it's not the Lord is a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Until he becomes your shepherd, none of those things really apply a whole lot. Because you're not following. You're wandering around like an aimless sheep without a shepherd. But when the Lord becomes your shepherd, my shepherd, again, what did Thomas say? Remember when Jesus revealed himself to Thomas? Again, Jacob's just had a revelation of God in his life personally. 
Remember, Thomas, it says, was not with the disciples when Jesus appeared after the resurrection. Remember, and, and it says everyone was there. Jesus showed up and he spoke to them in his glorified body after he rose from the dead. And it says, and Thomas wasn't with them. He skipped church that night or something. I don't know. You know, maybe American Idol was on instead of... So he skipped church that night. Everybody else was there. He didn't experience the Lord's presence when he showed up at the meeting. And as a result, what's he doing? He's struggling with doubt. Nobody else is struggling with doubt. Why? Because they were at the meeting. <laughs> and the Lord showed up and, and strengthened them. But Thomas is now struggling with doubt because for whatever reason, he wasn't present when the rest of the disciples were assembled together. Jesus showed up. He's struggling with doubt. Jesus, again, graciously gives a special revelation again, right, for Thomas. And he says, Thomas, see that it's me. And he says, touch me. Be not doubting, but believe, Thomas. And, and, and what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He comes to that place where for complete ownership, my Lord and my God. And you know what, gang? That is where the Lord wants to bring every one of us to in our lives. Where we would truly embrace the Lord for ourselves. That is where the Lord wants to bring all of our children to in their lives. You know, we raise kids in the Lord. Today I was down at... Uh, Cape Christian Academy doing their their chapel service for the the junior high and high school kids and and that was one of the things that I was really trying to impress upon them as I was sharing with them I was talking to them from Matthew eleven twenty eight to to thirty there where Jesus says come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest and he says take my yoke upon you learn from me I'm gentle and lowly in heart and 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 he says for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and I was really challenging them listen. It's not just about coming to church. It's not just about come to a Christian school. It's one thing to, you know, to to, uh, to be exposed to Jesus and to be exposed to Christ and exposed to the things of Christianity. It's a whole other thing to encounter Jesus. It's a whole other thing to experience Jesus and experience Christ for yourself. And I just caution them: be careful. Have you really come to Jesus? And do you continually come to Jesus? And have that experience, and, and, and I encourage them to really be sensitive to that reality. Because I'll tell you something, when that happens in somebody's life, it's a powerful motivator. Again, Jacob's in the middle of a wilderness, he has an encounter with God, and he determines right there, with nobody else helping him, I'm going to serve God. He says, he's going to be my God, and he says, and on top of that, all of a sudden, and you know something powerful happens when somebody says, I'm giving you money, Right? He's going to be my God, and everything you give me, I'm giving you a tenth. Nobody was there saying, uh, listen, Jacob, this is the way it works. We, you know, we expect 10% of the time. Yeah, there's none of that going on. This is completely volitional. It's, it's a free will. It's motivated out of what? An encounter personally with the Lord and the overflow of that encounter with God and the love of his heart. He says, you're going to be my God, and I want to serve you, and I will follow you. And, and I want to indicate to you that I'm committed to you. And, and again, this is pre-law. The idea of a tithe wasn't instituted in Old Testament law until the time of Moses. Like Abraham, here's Jacob just saying, I, I just I want to do this as a de demonstration of my dedication to you. And, and so I just say, man, that is what happens because that's a powerful motivator. It's that kind of thing that people need in their lives because then they don't have to be told. I don't know about you, what it was like when you first got saved, but when I first got saved, it was amazing how intuitively 
I knew inside things that nobody ever told me. I wanted to read the Bible. Nobody necessarily said, you've got to read the Bible now. You better read the Bible. Something I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to pray. I wanted to go to church. I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to live differently. Why? Because I had a, a living encounter with Jesus in a personal way that touched my heart and transformed me. And it was all motivated from love, right? And, and, and if you've had that encounter with the Lord, you know that. And the times when you have a real powerful encounter with the Lord, is it not true that it's an, it's an incredible motivator? We're going to see in chapter 29 when, when Jacob falls in love with Leah, he ends up saying, look, I'll serve you seven years if I can just marry her. That's a pretty hefty offer. <laughs> I'll serve you seven years for free, he tells her dad, if I can just marry her. Again, what happened there? This guy is so overwhelmed with love, there's no cost involved. And there is no higher motivator than the love of Christ compelling us. That is an incredible, incredible motivator. And I would just say this tonight. If you need a greater encouragement in your heart for a motivator times when i need a greater encouragement in my heart as a motivator to want to be dedicated to the lord and to resist sin and to walk in obedience to the lord and to honor him and to serve him you know you know what a lot of times i I, lord would you just reveal yourself to me afresh would you just just reveal yourself to me let me experience you in a fresh and a new way in my life because i find that is more powerful than any legalistic trip somebody can put on me or legalistic trip I can put on myself. It just stems from that natural overflow of, Lord, you are so good. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. And then it becomes just a, a very natural outflow of that incredible experience in our lives. True? This wasn't my intention, but I actually want to do is, Paul, can we... Can we enter back into a time of worship? And let's just, instead of trying to jump into chapter 29, let's end here. And let's just take the next 15 minutes and let's just worship and and sing to the Lord for a few minutes. And maybe in relation to some of what we're talking about, maybe this is what the Lord's intention was for tonight. That as we just worship him and sit in his presence for a few final minutes, maybe the Lord can just touch your heart in a special way. and, And as we worship him, maybe just do business with the Lord. Talk to him. Lord, Would you just meet with me, reveal yourself to me, minister to me in a way where maybe my heart would just be turned afresh towards you. Father, thank you for even just this section of scripture right here, Lord. Lord, to to let us see the, the humanity, the reality of who Jacob was, but yet, Lord, how lovingly you pursued him. When he was, Lord, at some of the lowest points in his life, Lord, you revealed yourself to him you reached out to him and lord you touched his heart with the grace of god and lord we ask for ourselves if our hearts have grown dull that as we even sing now that by your presence here jesus you're with us lord we by faith acknowledge you're in this place would you move among us touch our hearts lord put your hand on our shoulder open our eyes and our ears speak things to us let us see you let us turn our eyes upon you in a deeper way. And Father, I pray too, if there are any here who genuinely have never made a commitment to Jesus and they, they don't know if they've ever done that, that, that in this very hour, your spirit would show that to them. 
and that they would choose to call you their Lord and their God. You know what? As we sing this song with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you've never prayed to receive Christ, use this prayer right now. You can talk to God. If you want to know for sure that you've made a commitment to Jesus and you're ready to make a commitment to Jesus, just pray something like this. Right where you're at, just, just tell the Lord. Say, Dear God, I recognize I'm a sinful person. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus, would you forgive me for my sins? Jesus, save me. Open my eyes, Lord. I surrender myself to you. Fill me with your spirit. And help me to follow you as the Lord of my life. And to walk with you during this time on earth and take me to heaven when I die. I commit my heart to you in Jesus' name. Let's